0: Well, hello, everyone. Thanks for coming out to this uh, Case for Life seminar. That's a uh, a biblical, scientific, and constitutional perspective on the pro-life position, so about abortion. Um, This is something, this was a joint effort by Jackie and I. Jackie felt more comfortable if I did most of the talking, Um, but she is going to be up here for some of it. But this was uh, something that the two of us put together because it's uh, something that's uh, very close to our heart. It's a well, close to all of our hearts, I'm sure. It's a very, um, uh, a a deep and profound issue. So um, we're, if you don't have a handout, um, I think Jackie has some of them. Uh, It's just an outline of what we're gonna be going through. We're gonna kind of cover a lot of information and we're gonna try to do it efficiently so that we have some time at the end for questions or discussion or anything else um, so that we can maybe interact a little bit on it. But uh, the outlines are just so that you can follow along and uh, to take home as a reference if you would, if you would like. Um, so again, what we're going to be doing is kind of an overview of the pro-life position and, and why that would be the, the biblical, scientific, and constitutional position. We're not going to chase down every single pro-abortion argument and try to refute it. Um, that would take way too long. Uh, and you'll find as we go through that we're, we're going to cover a. a Many of the very common arguments against the pro life position, and they fall into like one of, you know, like three categories, and they just kind of dress them up differently. So, hopefully, by the end, you'll be comfortable recognizing these different categories and you'll know how to respond to them. So, before we go any further, there's just a few terms that you'll see on the outline that I want to define so that we're all on the same page moving forward the very basic terms, and we'll, there'll be other things that we kind of define and explain as we go, but these ones are just kind of like us all on the same page from the outset. So the first one is abortion. So when we say abortion, we're not talking about a miscarriage or an early delivery due to a nectopic pregnancy or, or something like that, something that tragically Um, might result in the death of the baby. That's not what we're talking about when we say abortion. What we're talking about is a medical procedure with the explicit objective being the destruction of a baby in the womb that would otherwise continue and develop through the different stages. Um, So that's what we're talking about specifically. Um, Pro-life, one of the ways that um, people that are pro-abortion, will try to waylay people that are pro-life is by saying, well, how can you be pro-life and pro the death penalty, which is not actually an argument for an abortion. It's a sidestep and trying to get you kind of bogged down in uh, a, a discussion about the death penalty. And just to be specific, when we say that we're pro-life, what we're referring to is pro the sanctity of life. So you can hold the, the position that, that life is precious and that um, all life is sacred and deserves uh, dignity and respect, while simultaneously holding the biblical view that there's, there's sometimes evil that requires the destruction of that evil because of the sanctity of life. So those aren't mutually exclusive positions to hold, but you don't need to get bogged down in, in, go, in chasing all of those arguments when the, the discussion at hand is about abortion. When we say we're pro-life, we're referring to the sanctity of life. Semantic noise, this is a term that refers to when the way that you construct your argument or your position is in such a way that it distracts the person from hearing the actual message. You know, for like example, if if I'm like if I'm trying to tell Jackie that I love her, but I'm, I'm frowning and I'm huffing and I'm sighing and I, or I'm being sarcastic or I'm, I'm doing something that undermines the message, she's going to be paying more attention. Like, what are you doing with your body language and the way that you're telling me this? You know, in, in this context, if we're trying to explain why life is sacred and why, um, well, everything that we're going to get to but we're doing it in kind of like a haughty attitude or we're finger wagging at somebody or yelling at them because this can be a very emotional topic to talk about, the message may get lost and, and we wanna be able to clearly communicate that message so that in a way that they'll hear it. They, they may choose not to and that's on them, but we don't want the reason that they don't hear it to be because of the way that we presented it. So we always wanna present our position in love and in kindness. So we firmly present the truth, but always in love and kindness. So if they, if they refuse to see it, if that's on them, it's not because we were doing something that got in the way of the message. So that's semantic noise. And then lastly, a fetus versus a pre-born baby. You'll hear these two terms kind of thrown around during uh, debates about abortion. And it tends to be that the pro-abortion people use the term fetus and the pro-life people use the term pre-born baby or unborn baby or baby in the womb or whatever. And neither of those terms are incorrect. Um, The reason pro-lifers will use the term baby is because we are trying to be as specific as possible about the human that we're talking about that's in the womb. The reason that the other side will often use the term fetus is because that's a term for the developmental stage that the person is in. And so it gives them a little bit of distance from the reality that that's a person. It's like referring to it like my son Ben as a toddler. Like he is a toddler but say like, well, he's just a toddler, like that we'll play a psychological trick on ourselves to, make, to, to give some distance if we're trying to dehumanize someone. This is why racial slurs are bad. They, they dehumanize the person that is the object of the slur. Or if you talk to any military guys that have been deployed, they usually have a colorful name for whoever the enemy is that they're fighting because then they're just killing Charlie. They're not actually killing A person who has a family and a life and all of that so it's a way to create a little bit of distance psychologically from the reality that it's a person that doesn't mean that the term fetus is wrong like I said it's just a it's a term for the the develops the the stage that that the stage of development that the baby is in so um, just to explain that okay so we're going to start by talking about the role of government we're going to look at what the Bible has to say about the role of government and then we 're going to look at what uh, America has to say about the role of government so I have we, we've we've listed out several verses as we go through these different topics um, if they're they're not written out they're there for reference i'm not going to read every single passage um, we, we collected a, a handful of them to show you like what the Bible consistently teaches on it. They're not exhaustive lists of verses about the Bible uh, every time the Bible mentions the subject, but it's enough to kind of give you an idea of what the Bible consistently teaches on it. And so I'll read some of them um, and the rest are there for you to, to look up if you'd like to. So the role of government, R- Romans 13, three and four, this is a passage uh, most of us are probably familiar with. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And the, the First Peter uh, 2, 13 and 14 kind of reiterates that. It states that the government is instituted by God to reward those who do good and punish those who do evil. So... Again, that's the biblical position on the role of government. It's instituted by God to deter evil and facilitate the good. Now, our country specifically defines the government in the Declaration of Independence and in the Constitution. And in those documents, so the first one we'll look at is an excerpt from the beginning of the Declaration of Independence. Again, something that we're probably all familiar with. But just as a reminder, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed." So in that very first document, the Declaration of Independence, the Founding Fathers stated that the purpose of government was to secure the rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that's echoed in the Constitution in the 14th Amendment, which states that no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or the property without due process or deny any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of laws. So you can see the biblical values that are reflected in what our founding fathers believed was the role of government. So, and in, in the, in the interesting thing about this amendment, the wording, it starts off talking about citizens, but when it talks about the right to life, liberty, or property, it switches from citizens to persons. So it says, any person that's in America has a right to these things, and has a right not to be deprived of them by the government, without due pro- or anyone, by, without due process of law. And that's important, um, because The reason that this is such a hot issue right now is because of the overturning of Roe versus Wade. Everybody's aware of that. And we could spend a long time talking about that, but I'm just gonna briefly touch on it. Um, Roe versus Wade was terrible case law, and there's, uh, like I said, a lot of reasons why it was terrible case law. We're not gonna go through all of them tonight. But the main gist of it is that the federal government just created out of thin air jurisdiction to regulate abortion and give that at, and, and say that it's a constitutional right. There's nothing that mentions abortion in the Constitution, and there's nothing that would delegate that area to the federal government for, uh, for them to actually make laws about, for them to make legislation about. Uh, in fact, the reason that it was overturned was because the Tenth Amendment specifically says the areas that the federal government has jurisdiction over would be the areas that are explicitly laid out in the Constitution. Anything outside that falls to the states. And that includes things up to and including murder. So murder laws are state laws. That's not the area, that's not the purview of the federal government, but it is the purview of the state. And so it was, it was again, out of thin air that the, the Supreme Court decided to make abortion a, a right under federal law And that's a problem because it should be a state's issue. And that gives the people more say. And that's why it's a good thing that it was kicked back to the states. And why when people say, well, why should the government be involved at all? Well, overturning Roe versus Wade actually makes the government less involved because it's not the federal government top down controlling what everybody has to do, but it's allowing the states to put in their own legislation by elected representatives, so we have much more of a say in what our state is going to put into legislation regarding abortion by voting in the people that we want, who are going to put in the laws that we want. So it's a good thing for our institutions because it, it was it was undermining the integrity of the institution of the Supreme Court to have them just start creating legislation out of nowhere by case law. That's not how it's supposed to work. And it's a good thing for pro-life that it was kicked back to the states because now we actually have the option to vote and be active and get good pro-life laws on the books. So, um, the other interesting thing is even in the, excuse me, even in the decision that of, of Roe versus Wade, so the original decision back in 1973, Supreme Court Justice Harry Buckman, or, uh, Blackman wrote the decision that codified that, codify that um, into case law. And even in that decision, he wrote, if this suggestion of fetal personhood is established, the appellate's case, of course, collapses, for the fetus's right to life would then be guaranteed specifically by the 14th Amendment, which is the amendment that we just read about. The right to life, liberty, and property. So even in the decision of Roe versus Wade, the judge says, "Well, if you can prove that the fetus is a person, then all of this collapses because, of course, he would be guaranteed the same rights as everybody else under the Fourteenth Amendment." And that's the pro-life position, and that's what we're going to be doing for the rest of tonight: is showing the reasons why we believe that it's clear that the that the uh, that the baby in the womb is a person from the moment of conception on, and we'll look at. Biblical evidence, and we'll look at scientific evidence. So uh, we should have our worldview informed by the Bible because the Bible is the standard of truth. So that should be the first place that we look. So we're going to look there to see what the Bible says about a few different topics. The first being the sanctity of life. Where do we get this idea that life is precious? So Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Right there, that explains a couple of things. One, that we're all equal in value and worth before God. So male and female, he created them both in his own image. Not one a little bit more than the other, but both are equal in value and worth before God. And the reason that we have intrinsic value and, and that life is, is, um, is precious is because... We are image bearers of God, the creator of the universe. So that's what imbues every single person, no matter age, race, color, creed, gender, any of that. They are beings that were created in the image of God and are therefore uh, precious. Uh, And then there's a couple other verses that, uh, other passages there that just reiterate that God created humans in his likeness. And then Leviticus 18.21, is it says you shall not give any of your children to offer them to Moloch and so profane the name of God, the name of your God. I am the Lord, and that's related to the sanctity of life for a couple of reasons. One, God's saying that He does not. So, without getting too graphic, the uh, what, what he's talking about there, there was a pagan god in the land of Canaan named Moloch, and you would sacrifice small children to this god by killing them. And, uh, and that was supposed to get you his blessing. So you would sacrifice your own offspring for material gain, um, which is eerily familiar of many of the reasons that the pro-choice movement gives for why they should be allowed to abort. Well, women have careers, women want freedom to go do, fill in the blank, uh, children cost too much. It's, it's all these material things that, that the woman that, that they're saying the woman's entitled to and that she won't get unless she kills that baby, and so therefore it's OK to kill the baby. And regardless of whether they're correct or not about uh, maybe her leaving, having to leave her job or, or something like that, that doesn't if you recognize the personhood of the baby, it still wouldn't justify murdering them. So that's something to keep in mind. Um, But the the other thing that this this is talking about is um, so it it talks about how offering children to Molech would profane the name of God. And that's because we are image bearers of God. So you're taking this this um, sacred image bearer of God and then you're killing it, which is bad, as we'll get into. Uh, But you are also offering it to a false god. So how heinous of an act could you get? But we're not far off in this culture because we sacrifice things all the time to the gods of material wealth. So now you may say, well, those were children that had already been born. They were out of the womb, and so it's different. All right, so let's look at what the Bible says about when life begins. So Psalm 139, 13 through 16 says, you, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. Your book, In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me. Yet as yet, there were none of them." So as he's talking about before he was even completed in the womb, God knew him. God had a plan for him. Uh, and, and we see that reiterated throughout these other passages. You know, um, Psalm twenty two ten. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God, while he was still in his mother's womb. Uh, and the other thing that I would like to draw attention to is the, in Exodus twenty two 21, 22 through 25. I won't, I won't read the whole passage because it's a little bit long, but that's God giving Moses the law, and that's a passage regarding when men are fighting or when people are fighting and a pregnant woman gets involved and the baby comes out and what to do if it is harmed. And what God says is that the, the person who harms that baby is whatever he did to the baby is required of him. So a life for a life, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, burn for burn, scratch for scratch. And what he's doing is not only is he saying that's a life, but he's also saying that it is of equal value and worth Of that of the person who uh, who harmed it, so that's interesting uh, to think about when even just looking through the law. And the law of Moses is very much like that. You could just read it as a list of rules, but if you look to the principles that are behind those rules, you see them reflected in our laws, and you see how, uh, like, really the heart of God in this, and you 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 learn little gems like this, like He sees unborn babies as lives, and he sees them as of equal value to a full-grown adult, a full-grown adult male uh, in that culture, which would have been significant. So, well, is killing bad at all? So killing of the innocent. Uh, Exodus 20, 13, you shall not murder, sums it up rather nicely, right? And that's basically the pro-life position. You shall not murder, you know, and it's just showing that abortion is murder is where we have to do some work because of where our culture is right now, but that's the crux of it, right? So Exodus 23, 7 says, keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous for I will not acquit the wicked, which is a scary indictment on abortion doctors. Uh, they're not going to get away with what it is that they do. Uh, Proverbs 16, or correction, 6, 16 through 19, uh, it lists a bunch of things that the Lord hates and one of them is hands that shed innocent blood. And then Matthew 18, 14 says, this is Jesus speaking, so it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So we see the heart of God in all of these reflected that he abhors the killing of innocent and he, he finds children precious. And he, he views children in the womb as life, as children. Um, in fact, in... In that Exodus passage, it starts out by saying, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, it refers to the unborn baby as a child. So there we see the the sanctity of life reflected in that we are made in God's image, and we, we are all of equal value and worth in that respect before him. We see that God views life as starting in the womb and that he abhors the killing of innocents. Uh, Two other things that are worth um, just touching on while we're in Scripture. Despite what our culture says, children are a blessing. And we know that because Scripture says so, and I also know that because it's a lived experience. And I'm sure those of you that have children can speak to what a blessing they are. Um, So Psalm 127, 3 through 5 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies at the gate. And that should be our view of children, that they are a blessing from God and that they are precious. So um, that was worth mentioning. And then also, this is a rather depressing topic, so I think it was worth pointing out, where do aborted babies go? Well, Second Samuel twelve twenty-three. this is... Uh, so David sinned against God, and his uh, child became sick, and so he started fasting and praying and asking that God would heal him. And for whatever reason, God doesn't heal him and the child dies. They're really nervous to tell him that the child died because if he's this upset before it happened, how upset will he be now that it's happened? And they tell him and he just picks himself up, he dresses, he cleans himself, and he goes and gets something to eat. And they're like, "Uh, what's up? And his response is, But Now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me." And it's that I shall go to him part that gives us some insight into what happens when infants die. David is saying that they go to heaven. So in that, not only is good news for for us watching on the sidelines and seeing literally millions of babies being killed, um, which is not a good thing, but we can find some comfort in that they are not, they are going to heaven. But this is also important to share with people who have maybe gone through an abortion and are now struggling with that guilt. And this is another reason why when we we engage with people on this topic, we need to do so with kindness and with love because we don't know who we're talking to and what they've been through. And it could be, there's different categories of people on the pro-choice side as we'll get into in a little bit, but some people are genuinely misled and they don't know, and other people, uh, other people know, and, and they're just, well, evil people. But then, but then other people are, are likely in this category where maybe they've had an abortion, and if they accept the pro-life position, then they have to face the guilt of what they did. And that would might be incredibly difficult, and it could serve as a barrier to coming to the truth. But what we can offer them is, is good news. So the gospel is always good news. And part of that good news for, the, for uh, a woman who's struggling with guilt about having gone through with an abortion, part of that good news is that there is nothing that she could have done that Jesus' death on the cross wouldn't cover. And not, not only does it cover it, but he, he asks us to, to, to lay our guilt at his feet. So it's not something that she should bear. For the rest of her life, if she comes to Christ, He can take that guilt and that sorrow away and turn it into joy. And not only that, but one day, again, if she comes, if she if she repents, gives her life to Him, and puts her trust and faith in Jesus Christ, one day Jesus will introduce her to that child that she that she aborted, and that's fantastic news. And 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 so we want to keep that in mind, and. Be, remember to offer that, that hope to people that we're talking to, who, again, maybe are struggling with a massive amount of guilt, having come to the realization of, the, of what it was that they actually did going through with an abortion. Because society lies, and, and there's a lot of stories of women who go through with abortion and don't realize until the other end that they maybe willingly, maybe not, but they believe the lie, and now they have to live the rest of their lives with, those, with that consequence. But Jesus offers hope, and the gospel is good news for all those reasons and more. So just wanted to mention that. So let's look at biology. Um, So here's the category of people that I would say are willfully lying. Um, So my my undergraduate degree is in biology, and I spent about an equal amount of time in Christian and non-Christian schools getting that degree. Uh, And I'll never forget the first, it was actually my first biology course, Bio 100, and I was sitting there and the professor, who did not like me because he found out that I was a Christian, I don't remember if it was before or after this happened, but he he enjoyed picking at me throughout the semester because he found out I was one of them born-agains. So, he was teaching on the biology of reproduction. And... Uh, he taught about the sperm and the egg and how they, um, they once the sperm fertilizes the egg, boom, everything's locked in there. All the genetics, all the DNA, all of that, everything that that person is going to be is there. It is complete. It is now just a matter of time and cellular reproduction. And that was the first time that I had heard it spelled out so clearly. Like, he was saying, like, this is its own entity. It does, it, it's not its... It's not its host anymore or anything like that. It is, it's not its mother, it's not its father. It is its own thing that is completely unique from those other two people. And I, I wasn't trying to go on like a pro-life crusade. I was just genuinely confused and I raised my hand and I was like, so, so it's its own thing then? And he's like, yeah. And I was like, well, how could anybody say that abortion's okay if like you're telling me that that's its own entity, that that's a human being? And he shushed me and said, we're not going to talk about that, and moved on. And I was, I was astounded because, you know, I was a young college student. You think your professors know everything. And, and, like, right there was the realization that he knows and he's lying about it because he wants to be pro-choice. As a biologist, he knows better. He knows what the science says. And if that's not what the science says, then he would have responded with some kind of biological scientific refutation of my alarming uh, idea. But he didn't, because there isn't one. He just shushed it. And that's what a lot of the arguments against pro-lifers are. It's shushing and it's sidestepping the issue, which we will get into. But that's that, that's that category of people that are out there, that, that know better, they know the science, and they purposefully lie. You know, I, I mean, you'd have to have a crazy amount of cognitive dissonance not to put those two things together and realize, hey, it is a person, like they know. And so we're gonna, we're gonna get into more of that. Um, but I do wanna share uh, the, this quote from the American College of Pediatricians. So this is from a, a journal article that they published in 2017. And this is, the, um, this is the abstract from that article. And it says, the predominance of human biological research confirms that human life begins at conception fertilization. At fertilization, the human being emerges as a whole genetically distinct, individuated, zygotic living human organism, a member of the species Homo sapiens, needing only the proper environment in order to grow and develop. The difference between the individual in its adult stage and in its zygotic stage is one of form, not nature. This statement focuses on the scientific evidence of when an individual becomes a human life. The zygote is referring to the fertilized egg that's been fertilized by the sperm. And they're saying right there, the only difference between that fertilized egg and an adult is one of form, not nature. Just like the only difference between like a toddler, again, and somebody who's gone through puberty, again, is it's just a different stage. Their nature hasn't changed. It's the same thing. It's its own life. Um, and then again, that's the, co- the American College of Pediatricians. So what we're gonna share now is a video from Align Life um, and it's a video that shows you the stages of development because this is another area that I I just kind of assume is common knowledge but you talk to some of these women and, and well, one of the common arguments, you know, pro-choice arguments is it's just a clump of cells, right? Well, that's just biologically not true and you can, we'll watch this video and you can see the stages of development and see that it that in no sense is just a clump of cells, no more than you or I are just a clump of cells right now. So yeah, we're gonna watch this video and then uh, Jackie's gonna come up and share some things.
1: This is Olivia. Though she has yet to greet the outside world, she has already completed an amazing journey. This is the moment that life begins. A new human being has come into existence. At fertilization, her gender, ethnicity, hair color, eye color, and countless traits are already determined. She begins to implant in the uterus about one week after fertilization. Her cells organize into what we call an embryo. At three weeks in one day, just 22 days after fertilization, Olivia's heartbeat can be detected. The buds of her arms and legs appear by four weeks. She begins to move between five and six weeks with both spontaneous and reflexive movements. At six weeks from fertilization, her brain activity can be recorded and bone formation begins. She can bring her hands together at seven and a half weeks and separate fingers and toes emerge. She can also begin to hiccup At the beginning of the ninth week, Olivia will have grown from a single cell into nearly one billion cells, and she is now called a fetus. She will suck her thumb and swallow, grasp an object, touch her face, sigh and stretch. At 11 weeks, she is playing in the womb, moving her body and exploring her environment. Her taste bud cells have matured by week 12, but are still scattered throughout her mouth. Her mother will first sense Olivia's movement between 14 and 18 weeks, an event called quickening. Beginning at 18 weeks, ultrasounds show speaking movements in her voice box. Around 20 weeks, with a lot of help, babies have survived outside the womb. At 27 weeks, her eyes are responding to light she can recognize her parents voices and will even recognize lullabies and stories olivia has gone on an amazing journey during these last nine months she will soon signal to her mother that it is time for delivery and greets the outside world
2: incredible video, right? It shows just how amazing life is right from the start. Um, Now, we've all heard from people that are pro-abortion the my body, my choice argument, and so what we're really trying to relate tonight is that it's not a woman's body from... From the point of conception. It has a unique DNA. It's, it's a life from that point. Recently, I had a friend tell me, um, you know, I'm, I'm against abortion. I just haven't decided like at what point it's wrong. So what we're trying to explain tonight is that science and the Bible, I mean, all arrows point to it being wrong from, from the point of conception when it's a unique person. Um, you know, they talk about women's reproductive rights, and it's just a clump of cells. And Uh, I I looked at a whole bunch of studies about um, just the statistics of who's getting abortions. Now, 97% of abortions fall under the category of convenience, honestly. Um, It says that these abortions are done because of social or economic reasons, not because of hard cases. Now, hard cases, that remaining about three or 4%, hard cases would be um, in order to save a life, for the mental health of the mother, cases of rape or incest, Fetal birth defects. Um, these are all considered hard cases. That's only three and a half percent of all of abortions. But these are the ones that they point to to justify the other ninety percent, ninety-seven percent. Those ninety-seven percent, though. Are really out of convenience and um, and they use the "my body, my choice" slogan. Now her choice was in engaging in sexual activity that created a life. You know she should have made that choice then, um, not at the expense of a new human life who had nothing to do with her decisions and now exists. Um, Professor Emeritus of Human Embryology of the University of Arizona School of Medicine affirms that every human embryologist worldwide states that the life of the new individual human being begins at fertilization. Even authors who philosophically lean towards not attributing the same value to human life at the one cell stage as they do to later stages of development admit that as far as human life... Um, As far as human life, it is, for the most part, uncontroversial among the scientific and philosophical community that life begins at the moment when the genetic information contained in the sperm and ovum combine to form a genetically unique cell. Uh, So don't get distracted with a my body, my choice. You know, understand this is a unique human being. Even from the early start, you know, people will say, oh, second trimester, then it's wrong. Third trimester, definitely wrong. Like, no, it's, it's a person from the beginning. So... Um, I'm just going to speak a little bit to the individuality of babies in the womb. I just think this is so so amazing. And if you go on any scholarly website uh, like Google Scholar, I use a lot, and you can just type in "personalities of baby and babies in the womb," and you can see all these studies, probably dozens of studies that they've done to see are are they people before before they're born, um, and and they are. So first, before we get into that, the two biblical examples I have to show this. Um, one is in Luke 1, verse 41 to 44. Uh, It's when Elizabeth is pregnant with John the Baptist and Mary is pregnant with Jesus. It says, And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the babe leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she spoke out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. But why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. That to me is just so amazing. Her baby in her womb leaped for joy. That's incredible. Um, The next example I have is from Genesis 25, verses 21 to 23. Uh, This is Jacob and Esau, the twins, when they were in the womb. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren and the Lord granted his plea and and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her. And she said, if all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two people shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Um, And if you know the story of Jacob and Esau, there was a struggle. And it started from before they were even born. now, the study showing the uni- unique personalities in the womb. Uh, the Journal of Prenatal and Perinatal uh, Psychology and Health did a research project. It's still being carried out. Uh, But it has been established, they state, that it is possible to correctly predict the personality of the baby with the help of a printout of the fetal heartbeat when music is played to the fetus. The evidence is that the personality is already established. The researcher simply uses music to ascertain what the personality is. And you can read the article, it talks about how the baby reacts to music. And I think um, the babies were even reacting before the halfway point in pregnancy. So it's not like a baby that's right about to be born. Uh, That was part of the research research, but some of it was babies, you know, like I said, before the halfway point. Um, Another study, they recruited couples from childbirth classes, and they surveyed these parents uh, before they had their children, and and wanted the parents to to say what they thought the temperament was going to be like of their children, and they found uh, that the parents were correct. They were able to accurately decipher the temperament of their babies before they were born, and then when the babies were born, you know it was true and i can speak to this from personal personal experience we have two sons and I I did the little mental experiment, you know, with my first pregnancy. I was like, I think he's going to be like this. I think he's going to be like this. I I even wrote them down. And sure enough, he was a very content baby. He didn't move around a lot. And I'm like, and this baby's very chill. And he was, he was so easy. The second one moving around all the time and he hasn't stopped. So, um, but just little things, you know, how they would react to my voice, how would they react to music, how they reacted to loud sounds. The second son, he's very jumpy. He was jumpy in my, in my stomach. If someone slammed a door, like he would move. And I was like, Oh, that's the, that's so interesting and I knew that wasn't my body and that was not a clump of cells um, so don't get distracted by by all these things they say <laughs> um, now we're gonna start getting into some other arguments used to promote abortion there are so many of them so like David said earlier in the night we could spend all night just talking you know countering what they have to say about it but we're not gonna do that just some of them
0: <laughs> yeah so Jack you'll stay up here and we're just gonna kind of go back and forth um. So a very common one that that I've run into uh, is this idea that the woman didn't consent to be pregnant. So in order to carry that pregnancy to term, it requires that the woman consent to that uh, baby being in her uterus, and she's not required to consent. And so in the case where she doesn't consent, then she can have an abortion. Well. <laughs> Well, there's a couple of things. One, it doesn't address the personhood of the baby, but the other thing is that it, it's wrong because the consent did happen when she knowingly engaged in activity that could result in an innocent third party being in her uterus and requiring her for survival. So to kind of illustrate the absurdity of this position, it would be like if you were driving down the road and there were sidewalks and there were people on the sidewalks and you just decided for funsies to close your eyes and hope for the best. Well, your car hops up onto the curb and hits a bunch of people. You didn't mean for that to happen. You didn't consent to allow your car to do that. Are you still morally and legally culpable for what happened? (laughs) Yes, because you engage in activity that you knew could result in the, the harm of somebody else. Like you're, you're free to drive your car wherever you want without government interference, but you're not free to drive it into people or in a way that could cause harm to other people because now there's a, there's a third party that's been introduced and in the context of that situation, it's an innocent third party. And so it's well within the government's purview to make laws and enforce laws that don't allow people to put innocent third parties at risk of serious bodily harm or death. That would include abortion because the baby is that third party who is in that womb through no fault of its own. It's there as a direct result of decisions that the woman and whomever she slept with made. Um, so this idea that the woman needs to consent to the, the pregnancy once, you know, after, the, after conception has already taken place is absurd and that's, that's not a good argument. And you might ask, what about cases of rape?
2: So rape is one of one of the biggest ones that they'll use. Um, again, the study that I had cited it surveyed more than two and a half million women who had had abortions over a span of almost 25 years in in America, but also uh, nations across the world. And it found now this is even on the high end compared to a lot of the studies I read. But in cases of rape, it's a 0.39 percent of abortions. So they're using less than 0.1 or less than one percent of abortions scenarios to to justify the rest of them Um, now in cases of rape we wouldn't say you know because of the trauma of that scenario it now justifies the murder of the innocent third party no we want the rapist to be you know prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law and more but um but in the case of rape two two wrongs don't make a right And studies have shown that women who have abortion have a much, much higher rate of depression, um, PTSD, suicide, mental disorders, anxiety disorders. Uh, There's two studies, one from the Journal of Psychiatric Research, another from the Canadian Journal of Psychiatry. Uh, Both studies showed that a person's history for abortion was linked to a wide range of disorders. Like I said, PTSD, panic attacks, bipolar depression, mania, and all kinds of substance abuse. So to tell a woman that she should abort her baby if she's been raped adds to the trauma that she now has to process. Um, They found that women that end up carrying their baby to term and even putting it up for adoption, they don't struggle the same with the depression and the suicide um, and the anxiety. So so yes, it's a tragic situation. And and obviously, if we know anyone who's going through this, like we should have a heart of compassion for her. But there is healing, like David talked about, through Christ. And, and telling her she should abort her baby just adds to the trauma that she now has to process. Um, one other thing about that that I thought was interesting was the study said, um, that the effects of the the depression get worse over time. So a lot of times a woman will have an abortion, and she may not regret it immediately, but after two years or five years or 10 years, it kind of snowballs, and it gets worse and worse and worse and harder and harder for her to process. That was one thing I I found pretty surprising, because you would think maybe she'd regret it at first, and then time would heal it, but it was kind of the opposite in in the studies that I had read.
0: You shuffled my paper. (laughs) Uh, I believe the next one is um, basically co- comparing um, th- this idea that, like, well, we wouldn't uh, compel somebody to give a blood transfusion or compel somebody to give their kidney to somebody who needed a kidney. So why would we compel a woman to facilitate the, the growth of this baby? Which again, assumes that the baby has imposed itself on the woman through no activity of the woman's when again it's it's the other way around and so it's just kind of another version of that consent argument it's it 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 sidesteps the personhood and it it makes it about the imposition on the woman and completely discounts the fact that the reason that it's there is through activity that the woman engaged in the woman put the baby there the baby didn't just climb on up in there like that's that was something that that it had no say in, in the matter of, and so that's important to to factor in. So we would say that if the person required those things because of direct behavior on your part, then you would be morally responsible to make it right. And that's more alike, like what we're talking about in the case of pregnancies. Jackie's next, but I don't know what it is because she took my paper. <laughs>
2: Uh, the next one that we've heard a lot is people say, you know, the mother is too poor to support the baby or she would have to put the baby up for adoption and it would be an orphan. Um, first of all, children are always a blessing, but I just want to read a Bible verse, Proverbs 22 to the rich and the poor have this in common. The Lord is maker of them all. So to, you know, project the circumstances that a child may or may not grow up in as a reason to murder, it just obviously doesn't work.
0: If you're pro-life, then you should pay for or adopt all the unwanted babies." This is, again, an argument that sidesteps the, sidesteps the main issue, which is that we're talking about a person who has the right to life like everybody else does, protected under the Constitution. And to show the absurdity of that argument, just change it from babies to something else. You know, um, if I mean, we could use uh, if, if, all, if, if there was someone who was uh, going around and rounding up all the undocumented immigrants and killing them, and we were like, you can't do that. Those are people. And they said, well, unless you're willing to take them in and pay for them and, and get them a job and pay for them to become citizens, I have the right to continue killing them. We would say, well, that's absurd. Like, of course you don't, because they're a person and they have those protections that are enumerated in the 14th Amendment. But that's exactly what this argument does with babies. Like, well, unless you're gonna take them in, then I get to kill them. No, no, you don't. Just, and not to mention, religious people do those things, adoption, foster care, donating to organizations that, that uh, reach out to these, these babies and these mothers in far greater numbers than people that are not religious. Um, but anybody that does that, anybody who adopts, fosters, are heroes, for sure, uh, and, and that's, not, that's not to discount the, the people that do that. It's amazing, and I have the utmost respect for people that, that adopt and foster and give to these, these organizations who dedicate their lives to these, uh, these voiceless people. Um, but certainly, even if you don't do that thing that, that would be morally good, it would not justify morally, legally, or otherwise, well, now I get to kill that person. It's just, it's, it's a huge jump in logic. So that's a bad argument. Um, well, what about too poor? I went over that one. You did that one. Lord makes them all. Lord makes them all, okay. Uh, women are going to die slash ectopic pregnancies. That's another really common one.
2: That is. Um, so that was probably the one I saw the most when Roe versus Wade was overturned all over social media. Oh, all these women with ectopic pregnancies are now gonna die. Again, another traumatic situation, but the healthcare professionals in those scenarios can do everything within their power to save two lives. The intent is not to go murder a perfectly healthy, growing life. Um, And in all the states that have now Ban abortion completely. I, I believe there's 13 that have com- completely banned abortion, and then there's a whole lot more that are very close. But in all of those states, they make provisions to make sure that women with ectopic pregnancies or who are having miscarriages um, still get the treatment that they need. You know, it's not a life that had a chance, so there are measures they have to take to save as many lives as possible. Um, but that's that's not the same as abortion.
0: Yeah, that is a common one, and the important things to remember are that, like we talked about in the beginning, that's not; those aren't what we're talking about when we are talking about abortions. Women aren't going to die because they can't get elective abortions. Ectopic pregnancies and things like that are in a different category, and states that have banned abortion have carve-outs for that. So the, the, there's there's been absurd stories floating around the Internet about you know people that are almost dying because the doctors didn't know what to do with an ectopic pregnancy and didn't want to break the law not a thing those aren't real and if if they're real then that's gross negligence on the doctors part it's not because there's laws against treating an ectopic pregnancy or a miscarriage so important things to keep in mind Um, so the last the last two um, the, the government shouldn't be involved this should be between a woman and her doctor well we talked about the fact that it the government absolutely has the right to be involved in making laws that protect innocent life. So that's that is the purview of the government. That's what the Constitution says. That's what the Declaration of Independence says. That's what the Bible says. So it's well within the right of the government to make laws that protect the sanctity of life. So again what that, issue, what that issue does is it, it tries to silence any opposition. It doesn't argue against the personhood of the baby, but what it does is say, because you're not the one making the decision, you can't say anything. You know, or another common one is, well, men can't have a say in, in this debate. Well, as a former baby, I would like a say. <laughs> you know, we all have a say. And, and it's because it's not about the mother, as Jackie said. It's not, it's not her body that's in question. You know, there's this idea that, like, oh, well, people that are pro-life—it's just a bunch of grumpy old men that want to control women's bodies. I assure you, that is not what it's about. Nobody wants to control them any more than 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 you would want to control, like, a murderer, say, from like you want to control them to the capacity that you're keeping them from murdering, but there's no interest in controlling that murderer's body. It's just a law protecting the innocent third party. And that's exactly what abortion laws are about. It's not about the, it's not about the mother. It's so hard for us to take our eyes off ourselves in this culture and, and recognize that this is about somebody else. And that's what this, this debate is. It's about getting your eyes off of what you want and recognizing that there's now another person involved in this, Situation, and they have rights, and they have dignity, and they have worth, and so they deserve to be treated as such. So, saying that the government shouldn't be involved, uh, it, that it should be up to a woman and her doctor, is ridiculous. Again, just change, if, if we've established that the, the baby in the womb is a person, just change the, uh, the, the, the focus of that. Well, whether or not a mother decides to drown her toddlers is between her and her doctor. Like, well, no, of course not, because those toddlers are humans and, they're, and they, they deserve protection and the right to life and all of that. It's the same thing with an unborn baby. It's no different. Uh, and lastly, we'll hear this a lot, you're just pushing your religion. No, we're not. Because as, as we've shown, like, this, this is grounded in not only scripture, but also biology and the Constitution. Having said that, There is nothing wrong with religious people having scripture inform their worldview. It's supposed to. The Bible is the standard of truth. That's what we believe. And we should behave like that's true if we believe it. And so this idea that because you believe, because this is where you get your source of truth, you don't get a say in the public arena. Again, an absurd baseless contention that is just meant to silence a large group of Of opponents to the pro-abortion view. This country was made for religious people. So not only do we have as Christians a requirement to to live out our faith, um, but this country was made for religious people. John Adams said that the, the, the constitution was written for a moral and religious people and that it wouldn't serve anyone else. Like it would just crumble and fall apart. And seeing the trouble that we're in these days and how far we've gone from our Judeo-Christian values, it kind of makes sense. Perhaps John Adams was on to something. He was correct. Uh, Thomas Jefferson famously talked about the wall of the separation between church and state, another thing that you hear thrown around all the time. Um, Well, you know, these Christians are just pushing their religion, which no part of standing up for the sanctity of life is pushing religion. We're not requiring everyone to be a Christian. There are plenty of pro-lifers who are not Christian. All you have to believe in is the sanctity and value and dignity of life and the personhood of the baby in the womb, both of which all of the evidence points to. Now, Christians, I think, have a leg up on everyone in that it's grounded in Scripture, which is the arbiter of truth. And so we know why life is sacred, whereas a lot of the West kind of just accepts that, thank goodness, but couldn't explain why. We can explain why. But having said that, so the separation of church and state was not meant to keep religious people out of government. What it was is it was, it was uh, John Ad- or, uh, Thomas Jefferson was talking about keeping the government from instituting a religion. So it was to keep a government instituted church. Out of, the, out of the question because that's what was going on with England, with the Church of England. It was a government controlled religion. He would have thought it absurd if, if somebody said, oh, so you mean that, there, that religion, people's beliefs shouldn't inform their politics at all? Of course not. If you've read any of the founding fathers' documents, the, the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, the Federalist Papers, all of these things, are riddled with Judeo Christian values, sometimes directly referring to, to God or scripture or something like that. Um, you know, the, the Declaration of Independence talks about rights endowed by the Creator. Well, that certainly sounds religious to me, but uh, so, so what, we're, what we're not doing is trying to mandate government instituted religion. That would be a violation of that church and state principle. We're living out our Christian values, and we're standing up for the sanctity of life, and we're, we're giving a voice to a group of people that don't have a voice because they can't speak for themselves. And we should not feel cowed into silence because somebody throws out this idea of oh, separation of church and state, or you're just pushing your pushing your religion. That's a, it's just a it's a tactic where they're attacking the person that holds the position instead of the position itself. So. That does nothing to explain why the baby's not a person or anything like that. It's just supposed to be, you can't have a say because you're religious. This country was, for, was made for religious people. And, and so we should be being salt and light in our culture. And we should be standing up for, uh, for the, the value and dignity of life. And there's nothing wrong with that. And, and we should be bold, but we should be speaking the truth in love and in kindness. So we shouldn't be nasty about it but we shouldn't be timid about it either. So hopefully, uh, Jackie share any closing thoughts that she has and then we can open it up to questions or discussion if anyone has anything they wanna bring up. But hopefully tonight helped kind of organize some of these ideas in your mind and solidify why the pro-life position really is the only consistent logical position and how we can take that into the culture, into our lives, our workplaces, and be bold about talking about it. Like, you don't have to be obnoxious. But, you know, like, there's a lot of people being obnoxious right now. Um, we don't have to be one of them, or we don't have to just respond in like kind. We should respond in, in love and in and, and kindness. But we shouldn't be timid. We should, we should certainly be firm and confident in why we believe what we believe and knowing what we believe. So hopefully tonight helped to that end. I don't know if Jackie has anything.
2: Yeah. I I just want to reiterate again, like we're, um, as Christians, we want to support the mothers and be compassionate towards them, but we also have to share the truth and, and tell people what the truth is. If they have, uh, viewpoints that are errors, it's, it's going to, Harm women who don't know any different. You know, a lot of women get abortions; they're not intending to be murderers. They don't have bad intent, but they're told it's a clump of cells, and they believe it, so they go ahead with it. You know, so we we need to have compassion towards towards those women and understand that a lot of them don't understand. But that's why it is so important to have a voice about this issue. You know, you don't have to be an expert in anything because this is about human lives. Um, now, that video we we showed was from a nonprofit organization called Live Action. They are a great resource. They're really paving the way for the pro-life movement right now. They're interviewing doctors and scientists and putting out videos like that. Um, now that entire organization was started by a 15-year-old girl in her living room. She was passionate about the topic of abortion, so her and her friends got together and they just started doing seminars on what abortion is. And now it's, it's like I said, it's pro paving the way for the pro-life movement because it's it's just a great place to, to get resources. And it's teaching people about what the truth the truth is, so we just want to encourage you guys, you know, have compassion, but speak the truth in love, because it's more important that Jesus changes hearts than than people just, you know, stop having abortions. We would ideally like God to touch them, so.
0: Yeah, yeah if we're being light, then then the darkness can't be in the same place, and what we just need to do is shed light on this this topic, so. Um, appreciate everybody being a good audience. Uh, does. There's so many uh, af- angles that we could have approached this. I'm sure there are things that you know maybe you had in mind that we didn't cover. Is there Are there any questions or any points of discussion?
2: Can I just Google that live action to get that video? Liveaction.org. Yeah, it's actually on, it's, it's easier to find on YouTube. It's called Meet Baby Olivia, I believe is her name. Uh, but, but it's easier to find on YouTube. And on YouTube they have dozens of other videos too that are really cool. Meet baby
1: Olivia.
0: Yeah, the question was, uh, for anybody listening or watching online, um, where to f- how to find live action and, and get those resources. So yeah, either Googling live action or, or going to liveaction.org or going to YouTube and uh, just searching Meet Baby Olivia.
2: I was talking with a pastor, and I was asking, I was asking her... Her? her, yeah. I was okay. asking her opinion about about on Friday because she said it was a sad day, hmm. and she, and I asked her her position, and she says she is both. She is pro life and pro choice. <laughs>
0: well, she is neither pro life nor a pastor, but
2: uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well,
3: so
0: there there is there is there is this group of uh, Christians that wants to ride the fence and say that like, all are welcome here, it's it's a tough topic, who's to say, you know, when life begins, so all are welcome, pro-life, pro-choice, this is a a safe space. Uh, Ridiculous for for a Christian to, to, to try to take that position. Not only is it cowardly, because they're just refusing to take a stance, you need to pick one, but it's also in direct contradiction to what scripture clearly teaches. So I would definitely take issue with somebody who says that Well, who claims to be a pastor and says that they're pro-life and pro-choice?
2: And additionally, she's not loving women who are seeking abortions. You know, we like I said, there's all those studies about how it affects them long-term. So you're you're really not loving them by not sharing the truth with them. You know, you're saying, oh, it's okay, do whatever you want, but then they have to live with these ramifications for the rest of their lives. So, um, I've spoken to people who have said similar things, and they say, oh, I'm I'm against abortion, but uh, other people can have them, and it's like, well, if you if you think that it's a life, then you have you have to be against it for you and for other people. You know, you would never say like I'm against you know something awful, torture or murder, but but other people can do it. That's essentially what they're saying. So I, mean, I think if you help them think through these things a little bit and see that it's really unloving to not stand for truth in those scenarios, like you're not loving the women by letting them be deceived
0: yeah pastors are in a tough spot because this isn't this is not a popular issue it's not going to be one that um, necessarily fills the pews so to speak uh, but that's that's part of the calling of the pastors to make those tough choices and stand for what God's word says so if somebody tried to take that position I would take to them the passages that we went over and the science that we went over and say like well what do you do with this you got to do something with it right and you know like Jackie said it's 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 being nice to people who aren't directly involved so that they'll come back. It's not actually loving the people that are involved in the situation. So, yeah. In your research, did you find any information about the day after pill? So the questions about the day after pill. What about it? How does that fit into the aspect of abortion? Jackie wants to say.
2: Yeah. I, I didn't read the entire study, but there was a study actually done by liveaction.org that found that um, women who take the day after pill struggle with depression too and the same same regrets as if they had had an abortion, which I thought was really interesting. I just kind of skimmed it, so I don't know the actual numbers, but it was it had ramifi- like ramifications too. So
0: And and technically like bio scientifically it is abortion, it's murder. Because if life happens at conception, the day after pill is so, so what, in case, in case people don't know, uh, so what happens uh, the the eggs fertilized and then it implants on the wall of the uterus. What the day after pill does is it tries to make the wall of the uterus a hostile environment to the fertilized egg, so that it can't implant and it just passes and dies. But the case we've made is that life begins at conception, so at fertilization so that is a living being that's trying to implant itself on the wall of the uterus. So if you actively prevent it from doing it so that it dies, that would be murder. That, that would be an abortion because it would, it would again be a medical procedure with the express objective of destroying a life that would otherwise have continued through the natural development stages of life. At that point, it's unique at that point.
3: Isn't that uh, pro choice crowd? They're trying to say that the next step is then they're going to go after contraception.
0: Isn't that what they're speaking well, of? So, yes. And contraception is different. So, this is something that is, is important to have to make a distinction about. The, the gametes by themselves, so the eggs and the sperms, are not the same thing as a fertilized egg, those are the building blocks of life. And so you can think about it like this. Apart, they have the potential to be life. Once the egg's fertilized, it is now life with potential. So, so most forms of contraception prevent the sperm from fertilizing the egg. That wouldn't be murder, because it's not a, a unique life at that point. A sperm's not a unique human, and an egg's not a unique human. An egg that's been fertilized by a sperm is a unique human. So if the process is blocked before it gets to the point of f- fertilization, that wouldn't be, that wouldn't be uh, destroying a life that would have otherwise gone through the natural cycles. So the other, the other thing, and this is just a, like a technical legal thing, um, they're, they're saying that because there's, there's certain uh, Supreme Court rulings regarding contraception, regarding uh, gay marriage, and regarding interracial marriage. And they're saying, well, they're going to overturn it on the same grounds. And the only justice who was who, who had the stones to say it was Clarence Thomas in his concurrent opinion. And he said, basically, yes, that we could overturn those things and we should overturn those things. But it wasn't because he's against contraception, against gay marriage, or against interracial marriage. He's, he's part of an interracial marriage. So it was because... He believes constitutionally the federal government doesn't have grounds to start legislating those areas of life and they should be delegated to the states. Now, states should enact the laws that, that, that would allow for those, like that's what I would vote for. But that's not the same thing as saying I'm against interracial marriage. Like if you're saying, well, the, gov- the, the federal government shouldn't be defining what marriage is like that's a reasonable contention to make because it's not something that's delegated to the jurisdiction of the federal government in the constitution. So constitutionally, that's correct. But that's not the same thing as saying I'm against interracial marriage. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. It's an important distinction to make because, because they could point to Clarence Thomas' decision and say, look, he wants to outlaw gay marriage. And that's not what he's saying. He's saying, no, the federal government just shouldn't have an opinion on marriage, which I would agree with. But that's not the same thing as saying I'm against those forms of marriages. You know what I'm saying? You in the back.
3: Yes, me in the back. So I think you've heard this argument probably, and it comes from sometimes it comes from antagonistic non Christians, but also comes from, I would say, uh, somewhat ignorant Christians or those that would define themselves as Christians. And it comes from Genesis chapter (laughs) 2. Verse seven, Yeah. Where it says, and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul.
0: Yeah. So again, for anybody watching, the question is what about Genesis 2, 7 that talks about God breathing in the breath of life to Adam and that's when he became a living soul. So the, usually what they say is, therefore, it's that first breath that the baby becomes a person. Um, that's an arbitrary standard scientifically, so... Uh, it's
1: also poetic language.
0: It, it, well, it, it could be. It could be. Like, you could take that argument, too. You could say it's poetic language if that's what you believe that it is, and then that, that settles that. But even if you believe that God literally breathed life into the nostrils of Adam, saying that, um, saying that that's, how, uh, that's when a baby becomes a human... That's an arbitrary standard for a couple of reasons. One, the baby's already alive and active in the the womb. Adam was not. Secondly, there's nothing, there's nothing uh, like personhood endowing about breathing because people stop breathing all the time. Um, Jackie's was an EMT. I'm a police officer. We've done CPR on people who have stopped breathing. We're not like, well, it's too bad this isn't a human anymore. You know, it's like, no, let's get them breathing again. You know, some people need machines to keep them breathing at night, it's not because they're in danger of not being a human anymore. It's, you know, like it, it's just an arbitrary standard that breath is, um, is what makes you a person. It, it, it's an odd position to take. And it's much more consistent to say, no, what makes you a person is the uniqueness when you, go, when you are your own entity genetically and you go from being potential life and you are now life with potential, that, if, that it's going to go and continue through the stages of life. To say that that's that's not a person until he breathes. Well, what about you know water births, babies that are born into the water? Would it be permissible for mo- mothers to like kind of take a look at them, and if they don't like them, they could kill them because they're not a person yet? Of course not. You know, it's, it's it's an arbitrary standard. Anyone else?
3: Isn't there an argument though as well that the baby while in the uterus is receiving oxygen through Sure. So they are, in a sense, though they're not breathing and you know, as they Which would. Is, which
0: is why it's arbitrary, because it's just the exercise of the of those lungs. You know, Mark made the point that, that babies are getting oxygen in the womb through other means, so oxygen is still keeping them alive. It's just they go from one stage to another, just like like adolescence Changes your body and certain things function in ways they didn't before. That doesn't make you more of a human at that point, right? It's just a natural stage of development that a live human goes through. It wouldn't
3: be a hiccup, it'd be a up,
0: What's that? It wouldn't be a hiccup; it'd be a throw up. Though. A throw up? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, like most of most of these arguments, all you, all you have to ask is. How does that make them a person? You know, because like, you can answer how conception, how fertilization makes somebody a person because they are now their own unique entity that's alive. That's when you become a person. You're separate from everybody else. You're, you're completely unique, and you're developing. You're scientifically alive and reproducing. You, you, right? you have your own DNA, all of that. But to point to certain organs functioning and saying, well, those are what make you, you know, like... You know, when their kidneys start functioning, that's when they're a human. Like, it's just, it's, it's arbitrary. And, and if somebody makes that assertion, you typically just have to ask them, well, why is it that that's what makes them a human? That seems arbitrary. And there's not an answer for it. And there's often cases of people, um, you know, some people say uh, a consciousness is what makes you a person. So do you stop being a person when you go to sleep? You know, do you, are, you, are, are people who are in comas not a person? You know, well, uh, viability makes you a person. Well, I, neither of our kids are independently viable. They would die in a matter of minutes if we just left them to themselves. But not only that, but think of people that, are on, uh, that, that require life-saving medication or they're on machines to keep them alive so that they can heal. They're not not people anymore because they're, they're not independently viable. It, again, that would just kind of be a rather arbitrary standard to apply just to infants, just to babies, but then if one of us stopped breathing or lost consciousness or needed the help of a machine to, to, to keep living, people with pacemakers or whatever, we wouldn't say, well, that's, that, well, they're a little bit less of a person than somebody who's able to do it without that help. It, it's not logically consistent and it's not scientific either. But there, there's so many of those positions out there. So it's worth asking about um, because they sound convincing because of the conviction and gusto with which they are presented. And that's why we need to do more of these kinds of things where we get them out in the open. It's like, well, I heard this and I'm not sure how to respond. Like that's that's a good thing to ask because there's there's a response and and it's it probably falls into one of the categories that we talked about, but... Um, we don't need to be afraid to ask those questions because like, I, I have never heard, I've never heard a good argument for, well, for, abortion, because it would have to be grounded in explaining why that baby is not a person. And none of the arguments do that. And the ones that attempt to do that fail, you know? Um, so I'm all ears to people that, that want to, to argue for abortion. We, sh- we shouldn't be timid about engaging in conversation because, again, they're, they're either going to sidestep or present some kind of arbitrary standard, and we just have to identify that and respond to it. And if it's a fantastic argument that you've never heard before and you're not sure what the answer is, that's okay. Go research. Go ask somebody who knows more than you do. You know, like, I didn't just walk up here and start talking. Like, I, Jackie and I did research. So... Uh, don't be afraid to, to engage with people and, and hear them out. But most people don't have it straight in their head. They just have a few tropes that they're used to hearing all the time, and they surround themselves with people who agree. Like, like Jackie and I, Jackie in particular, has been posting a lot of pro life posts. And so, you know, like we'll see something about uh, like an argument for that, that, that women are going to be dying, and then uh, she'll post. Refuting that, and she'll share other posts explaining things to people who think that women are going to start dying or, or something like that, who don't understand the issue of abortion, or she'll be posting about the, the, how the baby is a unique life in the womb. And she's, she's, uh, it's like she's gotten locked out of being able to comment on pro-choice things. Like her stories are pushed down to the bottom. That is not something that should happen if, if we're not afraid of of open discourse. That's only something that happens when you can't argue, you just try to silence. And so that creates echo chambers in these pro-choice circles, and they're just not used to people refuting what they believe. And so we can, we can have confidence in that and know like most of these people have not heard the arguments against their position. And so we should do it gently, because again, this is probably new information to them, but we should boldly share these these positions because they're good positions. They're grounded in scripture and in science and in our constitution. That like we have all these things on our side, so we, we shouldn't be timid. Anyone else before we end? <laughs> yes, you in the back.
3: I'm that person. Yeah. So um, so since and Jack, you kind of addressed this when you said that. 0.39% of abortions are from those who are came, that came from great.
2: And that was the highest number I could find for that yeah. statistic. Most of them were 0.1 or 0.01, but this was the broadest, most extensive study I could find. It was international and decades long, and it was... Um, I don't think that's his question. I'm sorry, what was your question?
3: <laughs> I like that. That was good. Yeah, thanks. Uh, uh, well, since the Roe v. Wade decision, you know, a couple weeks ago, I've seen two stories pop up on news sources, uh, one of which I think was the Drudge Report, which is, I don't know if how many of you are familiar with that website, but it's totally, has a liberal slant now, Did not used to. Yeah. Yeah. But um, they presented two stories, one of an eight-year-old who was pregnant through rape, and then one of a 10-year-old. And so these are obviously, these are uh, emotional arguments mm-hmm. And it is a, if it's something that is a reality, that's a horrible situation for that yeah. person to be in. And so I guess the question would be, how do we respond to something like that? And I can only yeah. imagine, what are the percentages of that happening? Right, exactly. Absolutely minuscule, but still something I guess yeah. is technically possible.
2: So. Yeah, so it, it is possible. and. Um, so for anyone online, in case you couldn't hear, he's he's asking about the cases where you know an 8-year-old or a 10-year-old is pregnant from rape because we've, we're seeing, I saw some of those news stories too. Um, first of all, oh, well, like I said, it, it adds to her trauma by having her go through an abortion because what if she finds out later in life that that is a human and she should if she's searching for truth. I'm sure it's going to weigh on her. And now she has to deal with the trauma that was done to her in adolescence and then the I can't even imagine the weight of thinking that you killed your own baby. Um, Liveaction.org just interviewed. It was so powerful. I was listening to it the other day. They interviewed a woman who was an adult. She said she went to enlist in the military, and she needed her birth certificate for it. Well, when she got her birth certificate, she realized that her mom was 11 years old when she when she had hers and, and it came out, she asked her mom about that. She said, why were you so young? It was a rape case. And, and that whole story, she, she said, it just gave her a new understanding for life and appreciation for her own mother to choose life for her. And they interviewed the mom too. And she said, I didn't even think twice, you know, I knew that it was a life inside me and, and it didn't have anything to do with the rapist, you know, um, like, that that was a horrible tragedy, but it wasn't the baby's fault. And so the mom was saying, like, I, I knew that I, I had to have this baby. Um, but it was just such a powerful story. I would encourage you guys. She was actually, um, she's a Pennsylvania politician, and I can't remember the name. Um, but Kathy Barnett. Kathy Barnett. There you go. So look up the story of Kathy Barnett. She's a politician in her own state who was conceived out of a rape case when her mom was a, a child. So, um so so I would say, you know, the baby doesn't have any less value because of the circumstances in which it was formed, if that answers your question. <laughs>
3: Fantastic.
0: Yeah. Well, we're a little past 8.30 now, so we'll we'll end it there. Um, we'll be around if, if you do want to keep talking or if you have any other questions or anything, we're here to talk. So thank you, everybody, for coming out to this. Thank you anybody who is watching that. Hope it was helpful.